Hi, I'm Jess. And I'm George. And this is Transpantastic, a podcast about gender, identity, orientation, and all the life in between. I remember when Maddie had us on our very first other show interview, Maddie Love, on the Trans Atheist Podcast. Mm -hmm. And she was like, how often do you guys have to practice to get this thing right? And I'm like, oh, you should hear the first couple times we did it. There were so many outtakes. It was bad. Mm -hmm. And four years later, we still have lots of outtakes and it's still sometimes bad. Yeah, but I don't have the post-it. I had that thing for like two years. You did have a sticky note for two years that had the words and I would just hold it up behind the microphone and you would just read it. Yes. And, and now if you, you couldn't have find it, it, you'd have to write it on something memorized, else. Memorized, except when you don't. <laughs> except when the words empty out of my brain. They do that sometimes. But not out of my mouth, just somewhere else. It took me a second to process what you had said. They empty out of your brain, but not out of your... I'm like, but there are no words in your mouth. They are empty. Oh, they're not coming out through your... Never mind. I got it now. Okay. I'm a little slow today. I don't know if that qualifies for slow. I'm not coming up with a witty comeback and feeling more slow because of it. Okay. <laughs> uh, I guess I better allow you slow. Otherwise, we might not get done with what we're doing, huh? <laughs> I think the antihistamine might be taking effect. Oh. Yeah, when you took that, I thought, that would make me go right to sleep. It won't. I'm lifting my eyebrows <laughs> with a questioning look. I only had one, and it is slowing me down a little bit, but I won't be asleep, no. Okay. We watched the miniseries When We Rise on the DVR because we don't get to do appointment television anymore. Yes, true. And so, yes, we finally got around to watching it. I didn't know it existed till you told me. I saw that it was coming in ads on the interwebs because that's where I live. Yes. The interwebs told me there was a thing happening. And so I told the box that records the non-interwebs visual media to save it for me. Right. And it was cool. Yes, it was. And it was really, really neat to watch because a lot of these things we lived through and we didn't have the inside perspective, but we had, you know, sort of been fringe observers from our Midwestern places. Yes. And after watching one of the episodes, you had commented that when you had moved to San Francisco, the culture shock of the separatists was kind of an oddity for you. The first time I moved to San Francisco, I didn't notice it because I didn't stay. The first time was what, late 80s, early 90s? Yes, late 80s, probably. Okay. I didn't actually decide that I had moved there. I, I left again. I thought I was moving there. There was a woman involved, of course. That, um, that happens. Yeah, it does. When I moved there again, I was actually moving east. Because you had been in Hawaii. Yes. Hawaii was a little bit more like the Midwest was. In what ways? Whatever queers they were hung out with all the other queers. There was no separation by age or gender or whatever. It was a more insular community. It was the minority survival mindset playing out a little bit more strongly. We all need to support each other. And that would be pretty much for, for anything we did. Although I have to say in the Midwest, there were some mostly bars or dance places that were bars that would be considered men's or women's places. But they weren't, well, one of them was actually officially so. I don't know about the men's places as much, but there was a woman's bar that was 
Like if guys would come there unless they were overtly queer and with some lesbians where they were not allowed in. Right. The very big dykes at the door would be like, uh-uh. You ain't coming in and trying to snag one and of my women. They wouldn't even have to say nothing. They'd just look at them like, nope. Nope. And in, in Hawaii, there wasn't anything like that because if there was a place to dance, it was on a Tuesday night, this bar had queer dancing and everybody went there. So. And the rest of the week, it was a straight bar. But they needed money, so they better have a queer dance night or they wouldn't make enough money, especially on a Tuesday. And so all the queers would get together and support the queer things with each other because it's a queer thing and we need to support our community. I think we felt it as a sense of our own survival. We needed each other and we needed to gather to feel that the other ones were there and that we were going to survive life. And this was how it was in the 70s, 80s, and even the early 90s and still is even today in a lot of middle America. I can't vouch for the 70s. I'm not quite that ancient. <laughs> In the, let's see, yeah, you, you were a teenager in the 70s. I, I was a teenager. I did, I did. Um, you did have a girlfriend in the 70s. You were not as I integrated did. in the community, though. I did, and we accidentally went to a gay pride parade. Accidentally went yes, to the pride parade. Yes, it was actually by accident. We got down there and we were like, whoa, what's going on here? We didn't know. I find it amazing that Chicago had a pride parade in the 70s. That would have been like late 70s, maybe the last of the 70s. Right. I don't know. But, um, well, part of the surprise probably was that my girlfriend wasn't queer. So there you have it. After we split up, she went and got married and had kids. And Most of us would call that bi until graduation, which means they're really still bi, but they want sociocultural acceptance. Yeah, but she didn't identify as a queer. Okay. So... We just kind of observed the parade and we're like, whoa, okay. That's a thing. I had no idea that was a thing. And until and then I came home that day and my father said, what did you do today? Because and I was like, you're, you're the, the dykey tomboy with the extra close friend mm -hmm. and the both of you were gone all day. Yeah, we were. <laughs> On a regular basis. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I was like... How does he know these things? And I didn't even know where I was going. Your dad was a little more clued in, I think, than than anybody realized, because everybody else who was dealing with him was so busy dealing with him. Sort of like how we get so busy dealing with number two's utter nonsense that when he actually comes up with something sensible, we're like, whoa! Yeah. And I think your dad was kind of the same His between his addiction and his health problems, that everybody was a little bit caught off guard when he actually knew something sensible. So... Watching When We Rise was interesting for me to see what else was going on in the world in relation to queers and the world I was living in and how that got to be where it was because I only knew the experience I was in as a young person. Right. I was not a Cleve Jones, so I was not creating the revolution. And you, know? and you were not... And he was 10 years ahead of me, so... Well, he was, but also you were not in a position where you were basically... Your survival depended on you moving to a larger city. You were already in a fairly large city, and you had fairly accepting slash naive parents. Your mom didn't understand that there was even such a thing as gay women. No, she didn't. <laughs> she told me that at dinner one day, yeah. and I was just like... Why are you telling me this? She has this bad habit of... Telling you random things that... That are mostly about her own shortcomings. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know either. <laughs> 
So anyway, yeah, they, they either didn't understand what was going on or they accepted what they could understand. Well, by the time I was 18, I ended up back in the closet because of religious stuff. Yeah, so, that was that. Yeah, there was about six or seven years of that. I'm sorry. Yeah, me too. So during all that time, what was your relationship to the queer community like as an isolated observer being stuck in a cult, did you have any even tangential connection to the community at that point? No, I didn't uh, until the last year. So that's part of how I missed everything that was going on was I was isolated from it. You were isolated from a lot of things in that group. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure I was. So when I was leaving the group, I got involved with queers that were in 12-step programs focused on having dealt with parents that were alcoholics. And there were very friendly groups of queers that sat around and talked about their trauma and then went out to eat or do stuff. And I liked it. Yes, understandably so. Mm -hmm. The initial contact one has with others who can normalize one's own experience is generally, not always, but generally a positive experience to say, oh, wait, I'm not the only one like this. I'm not the only one who's lived with this. You're like me. Yeah, and also coming up with solutions to dealing with that past and trying to move forward. And so you had then come into your own sense of queer community in a situation where everyone was relying on each other. Everyone was supporting each other because of shared trauma and because of shared minority status and shared need for survival. Yes, and I think there was a pretty large community of queers in Chicago at that time, and I, I met a girlfriend in that group, and then other things were going on at the time, like when we were watching When We Rise and things would come up, I, I mentioned to you, oh, I, I saw that, or I did something related to that, or I remember an experience. And some of those things are um, like the names quilt. Mm -hmm. I went and saw that when it came to Chicago. Okay. It went to a bunch of warehouses at Navy Pier so they could fit it in each of the you know warehouses. Right. And I probably went with that girlfriend because she was a photographer and she liked to take pictures as photographers. That, that's what photographers, they do. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh-huh. And, um, <laughs> but I did go see the names quilt. Uh -huh. And I did have friends that were in my group, quite a few male friends pass away from AIDS. Mm -hmm. And most of them that we did get to find anything like when their service was going to be or whatever, were very closeted. They couldn't like have the funeral at the Catholic Church if they said the guy was queer. And so they didn't. Yeah. Because that would ruin his parents' funeral for him. So we didn't go to them. Right. There was no closure. No. A guy would get sick, and then he'd get sicker, and then he'd be gone. And that was all there was to it. Yeah. And that happened in Chicago, and it happened in Hawaii. Uh-huh. And at that time, you know, I was living through it and not thinking, you know, thinking about it historically now, look, looking at the show that we watched, it gave me some perspective on that and gave me some places to fill in things like... The things I was aware of were queers, more queers in certain neighborhoods, more queers at certain places where you could go dancing and drinking, AIDS, Stonewall, and that was about it. I mean... What was Stonewall? What, what place did that have in your cognition? Well, it had happened some time before. That's why I'm curious, because yeah. you mention it specifically, but so, then it is a little bit before your time. Right. But I knew about it. Okay. Like it was sometimes a touchstone of conversation. 
Okay. And so I knew what it was and I knew what, what, it, what had happened, but I didn't know the types of things we, we can know about that now. Right. You know. So I met a lot of nice people and uh-huh. I enjoyed their company and hung out. And then the girlfriend decided to move to San Francisco to be where some cousins were and to be in San Francisco. Because that was a more queer place. And a lot of people see larger coastal cities as the promised land, especially when they're moving from middle America, even in a large city like Chicago. And I didn't want to leave Chicago. I had a perfectly good group of people. I had no interest in California. And um, she really wanted me to come there. And eventually I went to visit and I was convinced that I should come there. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. And I came back to Chicago and then got ready to leave. And my best friend at that time was very angry about this. Uh Um, She she was someone I came out to as, and I think we've talked about this in other episodes, but I come out to her as wanting to transition. And she said, oh, honey, you don't have to do that. You could sleep with girls. It's okay. (laughs) And I was like, hmm... And, and at that point in your life, your libido outweighed your identity, so you just went for it. It did, and access to transition... True, true. Uh, ...was more difficult than just getting laid. Right. So, there you go. That, that was a common understanding at the time of what the transgender experience was. It wasn't an understanding of the identity being different from the orientation transgender women were guys who just gayed so hard that they became girls. And trans guys were women who gayed so hard that they became men. And they didn't understand the difference. And so it it doesn't surprise me that in your very queer small circle of friends that there would be people who would just say, no, just do this other thing instead. It's okay. Yeah. I think they were trying to make life okay for me, not understanding that really that was my identity. And I think probably lots of other trans people would find that difficulty finding support. Right. So off I went to San Francisco, and I was not adjusting well. It was a big place, and you had unmedicated depression and were overwhelmed by the bigness of it and the closeness of it and the people of it. And no escape. Like, everything's really, really close. You can't go for a walk without having more people. You can't go for a hike without driving far, far away from the people. There'll still be people there. There will still be people. It's California. Yeah. There's people everywhere. There are. I wouldn't mind it, but I'm more extroverted than you. No, you you wouldn't. And yes, you are. (laughs) Yeah, that's... So you were just overdone. I was overdone, and although my girlfriend wanted me there, she wasn't a good emotional support. Of course, your first clue should be that your girlfriend left you so she could go to San Francisco, but you know. I'm going to point out that you met her in a trauma recovery group. That might also be a a bad idea. Um, Yeah, well, you know, could be. Continue. So I didn't stay there, and I went back to Chicago. Okay. But at that point, things had already started to happen in my life that were going to change a lot of events. Uh Uh-huh. Because you don't go through some big experiences like moving across the country without affecting your perspective on everything. And my depression got very severe. Yes. Probably before I came back. and Almost as severe as the wind out there. Yeah, which it's is clanking, getting noisy. Yes. clanking things. So continue, sorry. So I, I grappled with the depression more than anything. 
on my return. And the ideas in my mind of why I couldn't adjust to a different place. And I think I had left Chicago during a period of time where I was getting to where I was going to resolve some past trauma things that were standing in the way of me figuring myself out. And when I went to San Francisco, I made a big mess of that. Emotionally, it was too much for me to handle and and it got very tangled. I really wish somebody would have said, hey, let's put you on antidepressants. That was not happening then. And this was the time when your mother looks at you and says, why are you so depressed? No, she wasn't noticing. That was way later. That was way later. When I was living in San Francisco. Again. Again. (laughs) Okay. I thought it was the first time. No. Okay. She didn't know. But this also, the one other thing that happened out of this was that this girlfriend talked you into starting your path on higher education. She did. And that's part of what got you to Hawaii. Right. Was being in college and having a semester, not a semester abroad. No, but it was kind of. It was a domestic student exchange yes. program. I was so happy when I saw that map with Hawaii on it. But yeah, 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 yeah. yeah it did start all that because she had a background of I had a background of blue collar workers. Uh huh. Although my father was a white collar worker. He worked in sales. Yes. But he didn't have, did he have a high school diploma? No. But her family had gone to college and she went to college and she said, hey, you should go to college. And so you started college when you got back to Chicago. I did. And you continued college in Hawaii and met more queers. I did. And then you went from Hawaii to San Francisco and stayed in college. Right. And then you were hitting this culture shock again of lots of people, but now you were coming in with a better sense of self and a more established identity and a more established set of coping skills. Comparatively, yes. Compared to now, no. But anyhow, (laughs) the point is that all those things happen, and then I ended up back in San Francisco. And this was what brings us back to the when we rise, Mm -hmm. is my experience in San Francisco was similar to all those things we were watching about how Roma got the women's building started. I was very familiar with the women's building living in San Francisco. I bet. And how there was a separate community for the women and the men. And even though we saw in in the show, they did a lot of mending of that. It still wasn't like what I was used to experiencing in Chicago or in Hawaii. I, it was very, still very separate. And I would hypothesize that it's a coastal luxury to be able to express separatist sentiment and to engage in separatist activities because the community is so large. And by that point in our culture was so, I won't say well integrated, but at least so well tolerated that to be able to split oneself off from the larger queer family was something of an indulgence that you would not have had in other places. I can see what you're saying. I can also see in in the show as we were watching it that as maybe part of that luxury, the women wanted to keep men out of a space. They had never had that chance. True. And they could afford to try to do that. Men have all sorts of spaces that they've excluded women from forever. So I do understand that. All the spaces. They do. All the time. And you can say that having been in both positions in both spaces. Yes, I can. Men get all the spaces. They do. And there are plenty of spaces where men exclude women. And so I think it is perfectly reasonable to have a women-only space. But I think the cultural element of it and the, you know, the vocal minority who turned feminists into being perceived as man-haters is a luxury that a lot of the rest of the country didn't have. 
In part of the show, they were debating about whether or not women with male children could be in the space. And I remember experiencing those types of conversations and interactions going on around me and being kind of blown away by that. Yeah. You know. When you've never seen that level of seclusion or isolation in a minority community, balkanization in a minority community, being split up into factions I can understand how that could be culture shock. Well, and what I thought of that is, but they're children and mothers usually are taking care of their children. You can't separate that. But they're men. Yeah, well, that was a problem as we saw in the show, but also it continued to be a problem in many people's minds. The community, as we as we saw in When We Rise, did have some coming together in part because of the AIDS epidemic. And the women taking care of the men, although I'm sure it would, if she was on the other foot, it wouldn't have happened. Mm-hmm. Okay? Yeah, so it's true. Despite that coming together that did happen in so many places that then did forward the movement of equality or freedom or towards equality and freedom is really what I want to say. There was a still a very big separatist community in San Francisco, and that was my experience. And I, I felt very out of sync from that. And thinking about it now as a trans guy, I can see why I felt out of sync. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We want to exclude the men, but I... Um, wait. So where do I go? I'm supposed to go with you, ladies, women, people. Okay. What? Yeah. So it was it was very odd to experience that. And because there were quite so many queers that had developed the space, which as Cleve says, you know, claiming a space in the Castro and, and then claiming other places in, in the city and in other big cities, and but particularly in San Francisco... There also were these kind of, for lack of a better terminology, cliques of types of lesbians, dykes, and women with a Y. Yes. So there wasn't a way to connect then. If you if you saw somebody, like you went in a coffee shop and you got a muffin and a coffee and saw a person there that you might be interested in talking to for any reason, it they might be They would be hard. isolated by their small group of yeah. similar people. Yeah. If you took a liking to a crunchy dyke, but you weren't a crunchy dyke, then you didn't get to talk to the crunchy dykes. And if you took an interest in these femi girls over here, that you weren't one of them, then you'd have to wait for them to approach you. Most of those were in Hollywood. Uh, We went down and and saw them. Yeah. Oh, yes. You've told me about hollering at girls out of car windows in Hollywood. Yeah, we did it just for the irony of it. (laughs) They liked it. That's good. Yeah, they thought it was very funny. I bet. Yeah. But anyhow. Yeah, there was also that kind of segregation. Like, it seemed acceptable in Southern California for the women to be femi lesbians. And there weren't as many in San Francisco in and of itself. Because that's feeding into the patriarchy and how dare you suit yourself to the male gaze, even if you're not interested in it. If there were, you wouldn't see them, just like people don't see you. I've become accustomed to my invisibility. Right. And by accustomed, I mean I tolerate it for the sake of the privilege. You you accept the knowledge of that factor. Fair. Yeah. I do my best to use the privilege it affords me appropriately. Probably in the suburbs, also not being then comfortable with the other dykes who wouldn't accept them. So lots and lots of separatist uh, mindsets. Mm-hmm. 
So we saw some of that in When We Rise. And we yes. saw, um, you know, I had I had friends that would come to visit. I one friend come to visit from Chicago for some kind of conference and said, uh, a lesbian friend who is in a long-term relationship and said, wow, San Francisco is really a gay male city. Like it was overwhelmingly yes. lots of men there. Well, I think that's just a symptom of the patriarchy that even in the minority communities, the ones who have more privilege are still going to out visibility, the ones with less. Yes. And the men had more money because they're men and the women did not. Lots of the women lived in the mission because the living was cheap there. Yep. And the men could afford to live near the Castro and so forth. Right. So that also created uh, some of the mindsets right. that were happening. Right. Yeah. Or furthered it, I should say. So... I liked that as the, the series wrapped up towards the end of it, they started pulling in the other, for lack of a better term, social justice causes and minority causes and equality causes that are still worth fighting for and then ended with, you know, one struggle, one fight, whether it's about healthcare, whether it's about immigration, whether it's about gender equality, relational equality, whatever, that, you know, there's still a lot of shit to do. There is. And I found it very touching to see the the points at which they were fighting these different battles to see what was happening that I wasn't aware of at that time Right. in my life. Some of it I was aware, well, some of it I was aware of, like marriage in San Francisco. I had friends that were there. I, mm-hmm. I, I wasn't there anymore, but I had friends that were there that were getting married. Including and, the same ex-girlfriend. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> because that's what we do. We're all still friends. Yeah. This was before This was before Facebook, but I'll just say she friended me. She did. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I went back to Chicago. You, you guys had been, I remember one of the first times I was hanging out with you, she called you on the phone and you were like trying to figure out if you should explain this to me. And I'm just like, yeah, okay, cool. Yeah. I went, when I left her and went back to Chicago, we didn't talk for a while. And then she, she, she called or wrote me or something. Right. So she friended me, kind of stuck around. Her experience was they got married and then it wasn't allowed and they had a big like tax issue. We had that too. Are we married or not married? Yep. And federally, they were not married, but in California, they were married. Uh-huh. Even though marriage wasn't allowed anymore, they allowed all the people who had gotten married to still be married. So, yeah, I think that's interesting. And I I find it interesting to think now, what are some of the similar concerns that are still looking for progress. And I think of, you know, the transgender rights and equality, and I think of access to health care. And speaking of trans rights, you knew of Cecilia Chung, but you didn't realize that she was trans. What I said to you is that I knew of Commissioner Chung, uh-huh. but I didn't know she was trans. Right. And if I, if I had, not saying if I'd forgotten, but... right. If I had noticed it, I probably wouldn't have thought twice about it because she's a girl. Right. Right? True. I wasn't thinking about that. Right. Yeah. Transition. Girl. Oh, okay. It, it wasn't on your radar. No. Unlike the trans guys in San Francisco, you still have a newspaper clipping. I might still have it. I don't know if I do. I did have it for a long time. Uh-huh. Yeah. I became very aware of the trans guys there before I left there and had at that time started to transition. Mm-hmm. And then left it behind when I moved. Yeah, I find that interesting. So there was nowhere to bring it. 
over here. No, there's nowhere to... Now there is. There wasn't. There wasn't then. You are correct. Yeah. You would have had to drive a couple states over to go or catch a plane. To... I would have to travel. You would. It would be no good. It would be good if that's what you want to do. In the position you were in at that point, it was not good. It was not manageable for plenty of reasons. So yeah. we'll leave it at that. So, so I'm really glad that we got to see that show and that it exists. And we now have the book so I can read the book. Yes, which should have more in-depth information about the second of the four nights of the miniseries. Because right. that's where it started. And then they built backwards and forwards from there. Good to know. So is there anything else or is that it? I imagine that that is it. Okay. We'd love to hear from you, so let us know what you think or what you want to hear about by emailing us at transpantastic at gmail.com or by commenting at our website, transpantastic.net. Don't forget to subscribe in Stitcher, iTunes, or your favorite podcatcher, and leave us reviews and star ratings. Disclaimer time. We are neither your doctor nor your mental health professional. We are here to discuss our own lives, so we take no responsibility for your decisions based on our discussions. If you are considering transition, please seek professional assistance. If you are considering parenting while transitioning, you definitely need professional assistance. All contents are distributed under a Creative Commons no derivative license and may be shared freely in their entirety. Any alteration or less than complete reproduction requires permissions of the hosts. Thanks for listening. A podcast about something. I've only been doing this for... <laughs> Four years now? Yeah. Gender identity. There we go. I got it now. Okay, okay. so start with a podcast. What do you got, Bob? Oh, a crayon. Oh, no, no, no. No crayons. I told him to put those away. Bob? <laughs> no. <laughs> Number two. He did put them away, and one of them escaped, and Bob found it. Oh, for fuck's sake. He likes to eat crayons. He does. He was all happy with himself there. So let me start that again. Okay. You knew of Cecilia Chung, but you didn't realize that she was trans. Was it Cecilia? I think so. What is it? Chung. I thought it was Connie. Connie Chung. Wait, no. Connie Chung is a TV reporter. Yeah. No, no. But I don't know. You look it up and tell me. Connie Chung is an American... News reporter. News reporter married to Maury Povich. <laughs> <laughs> ha